You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and Redeemer. Amen. I won't allow this to get too thick with emotion this morning, but do, do know that my family and I are overwhelmed with gratitude for the Advent, the kindness that's been shown to us in this place for a decade now. You all have been most gracious to me and my family. I, I would also be remiss if I didn't give thanks to God, especially for my friendship with Craig and, and Gil. It's, it's um, just been my, my privilege to serve here. I could, and I should say more, Um, But let's turn our attention to more important matters like Jeremiah the prophet. Everywhere Jeremiah goes, uh, the prophet carries with him this uh, brooding sense of really heavy heaviness. Emily Dickinson's off-repeated poem, Tell the Truth But Tell It Slant, Success in Circuit Lies, That's not a poem you're going to find in the appendix to the handbook for biblical prophets. Now, in fairness to Dickinson, her poetic point is that humans really do need to know about the whole truth, but can only take so much at a time, so go slow. Jeremiah, on the other hand, views the land of Judah like it's a burning house. And when the house is on fire, there is little time for subtle niceties. You bang drums and you rattle cages because everyone is in danger. And when the ship is sinking, you tell the truth loud and clear, not slant. So Jeremiah, he ministered in the most cataclysmic moment in all of Judah's history. The ship was sinking. And Jeremiah is sitting on the front row of this historical moment, observing the train wreck of his own people's sin and their suffering. And it weighs on Jeremiah with the heaviness of God's word and its judgment. I I think Jeremiah suffered a most unfortunate providence. And as you read through his prophecy, you can feel his burden throughout the whole book. Here, Here are a few examples. I wish my mother had never given birth to me, Jeremiah 15, 10. O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I am, and you have prevailed. I've become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me, for whenever I speak, I cry and shout out, violence and destruction. But the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all the day. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, There is shut up in my heart, as it were, a burning fire, shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Jeremiah 27 through 9. And you can sense this, can't you? Jeremiah couldn't escape God or his word. They had laid siege upon him. And try as he might to escape, Jeremiah could not outrun God's word. It was like a burning fire that was shut up in his bones. Jeremiah had to speak God's truth. Naturally, this facet of Jeremiah's being brought him into sharp, polemical disagreement with the other prophets and religious leaders of his day. If you didn't like what Jeremiah had to say... 
then never you mind. You could easily find another prophet who was happy to give a sugar-laced message. Jeremiah's out of his mind, they would say. Everything's just fine. Don't listen to that, to that crank. When the whole world is running to a cliff, he who is running in the opposite direction appears to have lost his mind. I'm not really sure who said that, but Jeremiah would feel the weight of that quote. To the rulers and the nobles and the religious elites of his day, Jeremiah appeared to have lost his mind. And today's lectionary reading from Jeremiah sits right on top of this sharp division between Jeremiah and the false prophets of his day. In fact, Jeremiah 23 contains the the largest discourse on prophecy in all of the Bible. And our reading that we heard read this morning so beautifully is nestled right in the middle of all of this. So we need to listen to Jeremiah. I need to listen to Jeremiah this morning. His words against these false prophets are not lost to us in the pages of some dusty old book, kind of relic of a bygone day when men used bows and arrows and dwelled in homes with dirt floors. These words ring true as if they were written yesterday, and we do well to listen. I don't want to bury the lead. So here are Jeremiah's two central concerns from today's reading. Number one, God is greater than the limits of our imaginations. And two, God's word is better than any other source of revelation. His word is a fire. God's word is a hammer. The two verses that come right before today's lectionary reading, I think they bear some repeating. By the way, these make for great ordination readings for those going into the ministry of the word. I think about my students and myself as I read this. Listen to what Jeremiah said. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned away from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds." It appears that the prophets of Jeremiah's day had the gift of gab. They could spin a yarn. They could tell a good tale. They understood the powers of persuasion. Maybe even enjoyed a little bit of the glory that comes with the gifts of rhetoric. Micah the prophet, who was a prototype of Jeremiah, talks about prophets who were in effect for hire. You give them something to eat, and they'll fill you with good tidings. Refuse to pay them, and they'll prophesy your doom. And in the face of all this, God is incensed. I didn't send them, but off they go. I didn't reveal my word to them, but listen to them go on and on in my name. But if they had only stood still and in my presence, if they had only listened, I would have given them my very word. My word is not an act of self-discovery. My word is not the product of human ingenuity and gifted rhetorical strategies. 
The Apostle Paul, in a very challenging text, says that he intentionally toned down his rhetorical gifts so that nothing would get in the way of the preaching of the cross. Jeremiah would agree. I did not send them, but they ran, laments the living God. Do they not know who I am? Have the religious leaders forgotten me? Do they think their false prophecies are lost on me? Am I a God who's only near and not far off? Do they think that they can hide from me? Can I see only in the light and not also in the darkness? Haven't you read Psalm 139, false prophets? Did they not cover that in your seminary education? If I climb to the highest mountains, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, in Sheol, in the land of the dead, even there your hand can find me. You can almost imagine Jonah the prophet standing off in the wings as this thing takes place between Jeremiah and the false prophets, just kind of muttering under his breath, trust me, fellas, you cannot outrun God. I gave that a go one time and smelled like fish to this very day. The critique of the prophets here is that their view of God is too small. They're handling holy things with indifference, speaking in the name of God as if his existence didn't even matter. All of us, myself included, share in the guilt of these false prophets. Our understanding of God and his presence in the world, it's limited by the reach and scope of our imaginations. It's hindered by our incredible ability to distract ourselves from ultimate things. And our basic human instinct is to replace God with something that we can better manage and more properly enjoy. All of us fall prey to these things. Neil Postman in the 1980s describes us as amusing ourselves to death. Alan Jacobs calls our moment an age of distraction. And not a one of us here today have to work hard to understand what they are saying. Our whole lives can easily become a blue screen of distraction, inoculating us from the bigger questions that God wants us to ask on some regular basis. Lord, who am I? And God, who are you? Lord, have mercy on us. We need a Savior. I find great comfort in Paul's words to the Colossian believers. He says this in chapter 3, If you have been raised with Christ then keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the very right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So the, the false prophets, not only did they suffer from a thin view of God, they were looking for something better than God's word as a source of revelation. The false prophets wanted to talk about their dreams. I had a dream, I had a dream, they say. Now this is uh, tricky territory. Now, I don't have a lot of desire to enter into the fray on all of this this morning, but let me just say, the Bible as a whole 
does not view dreams negatively. God can certainly give visions to people in their sleep. I'm actually aware of many Christian converts around the world whose path toward Christian faith was paved with a dream where Jesus met them. I have no interest in denying these incredible phenomenon and others that I just consider beyond my pay grade. But the problem that Jeremiah is addressing and the one that we need to hear is of a different order. The false prophets were highlighting their dreams to the exclusion of God's word. Dreams or visions are subservient to God's revealed word. They must be tested by God's word, his truth. And his word is always better. It's the final arbiter. So if and when ecstatic experiences occur, then they have to be tested by God's revealed word. And and here's the real rub. Where such ecstatic experiences of the spirit occur in contradiction to the clear teaching of God's word, God's word always wins. So here's the rub. These false prophets' dreams were causing God's people to forget the Lord in the name of their dreams. And it is a frightening thing to be a cause for God's people to forget him. Several years ago, I, uh, I read a, a, a book by a British philosopher named Ian McGilchrist entitled The Master and Its Emissary. I was really taken by this book um, and, and still am in many ways. I don't want to get lost in the trees here and I, I, I realize I have a danger of losing you right now, um, but, but hang in for one second. McGilchrist sees the modern world as the elevating of the left hemisphere of our brains. Hold on. What is that hemisphere? It's the part of us that dissects the world into its various parts so that we can categorize and differentiate things over against one another. Uh, McGilchrist says we've highlighted that facet of our brain over against the right hemisphere. And the right hemisphere is where we put the world together into a meaningful whole. So in other words, the modern world tends toward the fragmented, leaving us lost when it comes to a sense of the whole. Now this is an oversimplification, but I think all of us can get this this morning. The modern world that we live in is broken and fragmented. We've lost a sense of the whole in in terms of purpose and meaning, even beauty. We can see this in the malaise of our young people and their sense of purposelessness and, and meaninglessness. People are walking toward a cliff and are are looking for something, for anything to tether themselves to. Something bigger, something whole. They so badly want a dream or, or something ecstatic or something that at least sniffs of the transcendent. Our humanity, your humanity, is incapable of being religiousless. So we'll link ourselves to something, to anything, whether it's materialism or hedonism. Or, just, or some just cause, as if these are ultimate and final. And here comes Jeremiah the prophet, right into our midst this morning, 
in the middle of the chaos of our moment and says with an ancient but very clear voice, seek the living God. Come and find him. He's not left you to figure out this world as an act of self-discovery. He's not left you adrift on a sea of loneliness and meaninglessness in a world that appears so connected yet inhuman at the same time. God's not left you in the burning house of hedonistic pleasure, a house that offers so much at the front door but leaves you hollow and hurt once you exit out the back. Enough of your dreams, God says. Enough of building your own towers without me. I've given you my word. I've revealed to you who I am in my son. Turn to him today and again tomorrow. And when we're wayward once again, come to Jesus, the living word again, because he is always better. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.